episode 142 NFL draft coming up this weekend. Would you rather be a number one overall draft pick, but never quite live up to your potential or be a seventh round pick, but have a serviceable NFL career? Ooh, okay. So the bar for not living up to your potential is difficult because I, I've heard people argue in the past that like Cam Newton didn't live up to his potential as being the greatest skilled player to enter the draft in like 10 years and he won an MVP but also you mentioned like Baker Mayfield as a number one pick where like it should have been Josh Allen you were not better than Josh Allen you just were thrust into a situation where you were picked number one I guess the other alternative is like being James Robinson right <laughs> I guess James Robinson is being the seventh rounder exactly you could be a James Robinson you could be like a DJ Jones who played multiple years for the 49ers and then got a big contract with the Denver Broncos as a seventh round pick okay so would I rather be Leonard Fournette or James Robinson. That's how I'm viewing this right now. That's tough. Uh, I'm going to take top pick that doesn't live up to their potential. Maybe if I'm in the moment of my career and I really, really care about this and I'm frustrated by the disappointment of not living up to my potential, maybe I wouldn't want to live with that mental health hellscape. But I'm going to say top pick guarantees $30 million uh, if you're the number one pick in the draft. And at the very least, you get to have a couple years of being the face of a franchise. I'll go with top pick as well. And I, I think even though there's going to be that initial game, you can somewhat coast on reputation and still get second chance opportunities as a first round pick to where I don't think that the lifespan between a DJ Jones and a Baker Mayfield is going to be all that different. Baker, even at his worst, is probably still going to have a eight to 10 year career. even if it's as a career backup, hell, look at Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert drafted with the number two overall pick still in the league to this day. You can stick around the league for a while, even if you're a bust, you'll still have enough equity to stick around this league. And how even if you are a draft bust, there's opportunities for you post-career. Ryan Leaf, Ryan Leaf is one of the more entertaining broadcasters now reflecting on how bad his NFL experience is. So I'll look at it from the bright side, not to mention you mentioned the 30 million, the initial out the gate first round salary versus being a seventh rounder, having to work your way up from basically the practice squad. I think I will take that out the gate. Let us know in the comments below, would you rather be a top draft pick that didn't quite live up to the hype? Or would you rather be a uber successful seventh round draft pick? Without any further ado, it's time for your random sports fact of the week. Wow. Did you know that? Now live on the Slumbuster podcast, random sports fact of the week. Today, we're going to be discussing the drama at the wide receiver position. None of the conflicts are as dramatic as the Debo versus 49ers negotiation. So in good spirits, as a 49ers fan can be through this whole thing, I have a Debo Samuel fun fact. Many wouldn't blink twice at Debo's name as the 26-year-old was born around the time of the 1995 hit Friday, but many would be surprised to know the Debo is not the actual name you'll find on his birth certificate. Debo Samuel's legal name is Taishan Raekwon Samuel. His parents did have a role to play in his nickname as well, though. Debo's dad gave him the nickname after noticing his son's propensity to be a bully on the playground. Again, reminiscent to one of cinema's greatest bullies. Clear as day, you can see it in the way Samuel plays, and it's half of why I love to watch him play. I just hope he doesn't bully my Niners at the negotiating table. You now know Samuel's real name. Challenge for the audience. Do your own research on Vita Vea and DM us if you can say it correctly. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. 
The age of the Devo wide receiver is back, and I blame the Jacksonville Jaguars. In the same season that Christian Kirk got a $72 million contract, other star wideouts started to test the market. Devontae Adams, arguably the best, got $67.5 million guaranteed. Tyreek Hill got $72 million guaranteed. And Stefan Diggs agreed to stay in Buffalo at $70 million guaranteed. Hill, Adams, and Diggs are still in their primes, but these guys were going for deal number three at this point. Several pass catchers from the 2019 draft are eyeing their second contract. Devo Samuel, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, and D.K. Metcalf are all in heated negotiations. Emphasis on heated when it comes to Samuel as he's the only one known from this bunch to demand a trade through an NFL insider. Kyle Ledbetter, all news or all noise when it comes to this group? While I don't like the idea of framing wide receivers trying to get contracts as divas, I do think that this is all news. This is very much a big part of the news story because for years, we thought the wide receiver was one of the lower valued positions in the NFL. We would have said edge rushers get these giant contracts. Offensive linemen, specifically left tackles, get these gigantic contracts. We see corners get top contracts and wide receivers were one of the lowest paid positions behind running backs and punters for a time in the NFL. And now the wide receiver is all of a sudden the second most valuable position in the NFL, second or third. The debate between them and edge rushers is is still in focus, but all of a sudden the wide receiver market has exploded over the last two years. And I find that incredibly, incredibly fascinating, especially because the teams that are investing in wide receivers overwhelmingly are teams that don't have franchise quarterbacks. And it's kind of being like a supplement for not having one of the 10 or 11 quarterbacks in the NFL who we say can change the game in favor of your team. And the debates about where the cutoff line is between the tier one and tier two and tier three quarterbacks. But overwhelmingly, there's about 12 quarterbacks that we'd say in the NFL are guaranteed 10-year starters for the team that they play for. If their team has one of those quarterbacks, they got the position locked down for 10 years. And one of the things that's interesting about that is wide receiver all of a sudden are increasing value, not just because of what Cooper Cup did last year, where he's basically like changing the entire Super Bowl simply by his presence. You take away Robert Woods, you take away Odell Beckham Jr. You just have random white dudes running around at wide receiver for the Rams. And Cooper Cup is the only one that matters. And on the last drive of the Super Bowl, they just give it to Cooper Cup, give it to Cooper Cup over and over again. It's not just that. It goes back to DeAndre Hopkins getting traded in his prime and getting a $27 million a year contract contract from Arizona because that player never becomes available. Odell Beckham did, but that's a different situation because Odell Beckham ended up having the injuries immediately after, but that type of receiver never comes available. So all of a sudden Hopkins resets the market. It's a larger percentage of your salary cap going to wide receivers for better or for worse. Like we'll figure out if everyone is right or everyone is wrong in the future. We'll see if Kansas City and Green Bay were right to move on from their wide receivers and their situations are different because they have franchise quarterbacks. I think this is a total transformation of the wide receiver market. And it's a great day to be one of the four guys who just got paid, whether it's DK, uh, not DK Metcalf, uh, Devontae Adams. We'll get to DK in a second. Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill and Stefan Diggs and DeAndre Hopkins. You entered the league at exactly the correct time to get paid. And for the, the four guys who are trying to get contracts now, which we can roughly say are the tier two 
two wide receivers in the NFL. It's hard to do tiers because wide receivers are, are sometimes dependent on the quarterbacks they play with. But we would name like seven wide receivers before we get to DK Metcalf, Terry McLaurin, and AJ Brown. Debo Samuel's an interesting case, but those guys, we would list a, a few wide receivers before we get there. We're seeing if the market's going to trickle down to those guys as well, and not just the top four highest paid guys, which is, again, it's all happening very fast just because there's like four different receivers, most of them with the same agent who are all eligible for new contracts at the same time. In a vacuum, there's no issue with Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, and Stefan Diggs all getting paid more than Christian Kirk. And in a total vacuum, I don't see a problem with Debo Samuel, DK Metcalf, Terry McLaurin, and AJ Brown wanting to get paid more than Christian Kirk. That was a bad contract by Jacksonville. And unfortunately, it just seems like the rest of the league is going to have to pay for it. Whether wide receiver is more important than other positions on a football team, I I think is still one of those debatable issues that we can go into because obviously if you're tier ranking importance, quarterback, you're most important. That's no question. Who throws the ball for me? We could go back and forth on this one too. The second most important position is who protects my quarterback? Who's that guy on the blind side? Who's that guy that we're going to make a whole movie after Disney style? Behind that, then you're talking about who's going to put the guy who throws the ball on the ground and who's going to guard the top pass catcher on that team. Those have always been positions that are more highly valued than wide receiver. And maybe rule changes are starting to shift that balance a little bit to where wide receivers have more opportunity to succeed. Because if you're a defensive back, the rules are slanted against you. It's really hard for a defensive back to be successful. And that's why we can only name three to five true difference makers at the cornerback position and why wide receiver seems to be getting deeper and deeper every year. And I think the depth of the position of wide receiver should be factored into how much you decide to pay at that respective position. Because why did running back become devalued? It became devalued because teams started realizing, oh, I can get a solid running back in the sixth round to basically do the same thing that a number one overall draft pick or a top three draft pick like Ezekiel Alley can do. We look at what Tony Pollard's doing versus Zeke and Dallas. When I look at all four of those guys, something that stands out, all four of them were second round draft picks. They weren't in the first round. And that tells you how deep that 2019 class was. Stars up and down. And we can make fun of the Philadelphia Eagles for missing on all of these guys. But that tells you that there's a lot of great wide receiving talent that's coming out in the draft year after year after year. So it doesn't make sense in a way to put a lot of your salary cap into a position when the next man up could just be in the next draft class or buried in the third round, buried in the fourth round. Because the NFL draft and roster building, it's more about value. What value am I getting um, relative to the other positions on this team? Very similar to fantasy football in that respect. Like why people typically in that community will say wait on quarterback is because in fantasy football, you could get value from one through 30 at quarterback at wide receiver. The fact that you can probably go 50 guys deep and still get some added value at that position, I think is what NFL GMs are coping with. And as far as just talking about these guys on an individual basis, Debo Samuel, you know, as a Niners fan, this is a hard one for me because I look at last year and Debo was so fun to watch. I don't think I've seen a run like Debo Samuel had from any other player in my lifetime, what he was able to do from his versatility in the backfield, 
from a pass catcher. The Niners, regardless of who was that quarterback, he was always adept to lead the team and put them on his back in the most pivotal moments. But what's making that contract negotiation weird is we're starting to hear this added caveat of his versatility being a big part of the problem of why he doesn't want to sign a deal and not even being about money. And if that's just more of a smokescreen by Debo's camp to say, maybe with at the right dollar amount, we can make it work. I get that. And I get that in negotiation because it wouldn't make sense for the Niners to pay him 25 to $30 million based off the player he was last year when you're taking away one of his key pitches. That'd be like a pitcher who just decided he doesn't want to throw curveballs anymore when a curveball was one of his best pitches. That's exactly what Debo was in the running game for the Niners. And if he lost that, that would be a huge knock on his value. Uh, when you look down the list, Terry McLaurin, uh, Terry's an interesting one for me because what Terry's been able to do back-to-back thousand yard seasons in addition to a rookie season that came just short with 900 plus yards and obviously not great quarterback play in Washington. That's very impressive. That's something that I kind of add to your value. DK Metcalf, uh, you're banking on the superstar athlete there. You're banking on his ability to hold up and continue to develop because right now, yes, it's a dig. Yes, it's kind of a meme, but it is kind of true. There is a grain of truth in it that his best asset is his ability to run in a straight line and be faster than the average person, be able to bully them. And if he loses a step athletically on a second contract, on a third contract, that could be one of those deals that you look back on and you're like, ugh. But back-to-back seasons of 10 plus touchdowns, double-digit touchdowns, you usually pay that guy. That's usually someone that you don't question. You just wonder, is he going to age more like a Des Bryant? And if he ages like a Des Bryant, you're not as happy with that third contract down the road. Um, and then AJ Brown, this is another guy too, kind of similar to Debo, just how the Titans have used him, but where he differs from Debo and both these guys have an injury concern, but AJ Brown has had multiple surgeries on both knees. How I'm paying this guy, you know, I just need, I, I look at a guy like Todd Gurley and I start to cringe a little bit at the thought of no doubt that he's a difference maker. And even Todd Gurley towards the end, you were still able to get some good value out of, but if his knees and his body continues to age like milk, then that could really hurt the Titans, especially because the Titans aren't necessarily even a team that's built on their wide receiver position, uh, the Titans would rather just kill you with a big run game. So if I'm putting a lot of value into the wide receiver position, does that make sense for me building out this team? Yeah, that's an interesting part for all of these teams is a player's value is what they're worth to the team that they're getting paid by, right? So like, I know the Jets really want a star wide receiver. Well, why do the Jets really want a star wide receiver? The hope that it will help develop Zach Wilson into a star quarterback. And that's kind of the, 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 the lottery that everyone's trying to hit is can we get a star generational quarterback? And there's more of those than there's ever been before. There's about, like I said, 10 to 12 in the NFL right now. And if you don't have one of those guys, then your next best option is maybe the one that we get in the draft will be better as long as they have a generational wide receiver, or at the very least, a very good wide receiver. And that's the bank that some of these teams are making. And when the Raiders trade for Devontae Adams or the Dolphins trade for Tyreek Hill or the the Jets try and trade for Debo Samuel or try and trade for AJ Brown or try and trade for DeAndre Hopkins. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, you have one $25 million contract to give out, rank these guys accordingly to how you would evaluate them. Oh, the four guys who are up for contracts right now? Yeah, and let's say, too, oh. to add to this, you have the lowest end of the spectrum at quarterback th- between these guys. Let's say you have Drew Locke as your quarterback. Rank the four accordingly. Oh, I have Drew- well, if I have Drew Locke as my quarterback, I'm giving up. Uh, Drew Locke's just a terrible, terrible quarterback who sh- does not belong in the NFL, but that's okay. Let's say if I'm given those options, if we're doing it by tiers, I would go Debo and A.J. Brown are kind of together. 
maybe you could bonus point Debo Samuel because he had as many rushing touchdowns as Nick Chubb last year. But um, that's part of the question there with Debo, right? Does he want to be a running back or a wide back as he's called it? I The thing I said about that, and we can talk Debo more in a second, but to we'll go back to the ranking in a second. But the thing I thought about Debo is just, it seems like at the very least a reasonable request. Like, I don't know if it's for the better or for worse of his career, because I don't know how like the running back position really does get punished a lot. And we're seeing even Christian McCaffrey, like the Carolina Panthers ruined Christian McCaffrey's career, just wasted one of the great running back talents of all time. So like, I understand that part of it. I don't know if it's better or worse for Debo's career, it means that I just think it's reasonable. If Debo wants to only be a wide receiver, it seems at the very least reasonable given how the running back position gets devalued. And if they pay him like a running back, then that's potentially worse for his negotiation or they'll pay him to play two positions. It could work both ways. But I'd say like Debo and AJ Brown are kind of in the same tier of like second tier wide receivers. And then DK Metcalf and Terry McLaurin are like third tier wide receivers. I think the boost that DK Metcalf and Terry McLaurin have is that their franchises probably value them more than the other two, which is a difficult thing to say because like the Seahawks and Washington are terrible franchises and the 49ers and Titans are relatively well-run organizations. I'm not going to say they're the best-run organizations in football. They're just run better than the Seahawks and Washington. So I think similarly to DK and, and McLaurin, they get lumped into the conversation where they don't have good quarterbacks anymore. The Seahawks did have a good quarterback. They don't have good quarterbacks anymore, but their team doesn't really have much else. And so in the same way, we're like DJ Moore is now like the fifth highest paid receiver in the NFL. And Christian Kirk is the eighth highest paid wide receiver in the NFL. Like as long as you have teams that value them at that level, then it, at the very least, it'll be worth it. And I don't know how important the wide receivers position is because we're rethinking all of this stuff over the last two years, right? So the easiest way to judge how valuable a position is, is by looking at the markets, like the markets will will give you a good picture of what is valued the most. It's not going to be perfect. Like everyone was paying running backs for all these years and it was a terrible idea. So it's it's never going to be perfect, but yeah, it gives you a good idea where like quarterbacks get paid way more than anyone else, then the top edge rushers, and now it's the top wide receivers that also get those giant contracts. To answer your question originally, you can you can do nitpicking on Debo and AJ Brown, but they're both about the same tier two guys. They're in the same camp as like Keenan Allen and Mike Evans and Justin Jefferson. And then after that, you could slide in DK Metcalf and Terry McLaurin, probably like a tier below them. Yeah. I mean, these guys are great. Not a lot of questions as far as how good they are. And again, I mentioned it with, with the contracts have already been handed out, not debating that they should be somewhere in that 20 plus million dollar range. I'm, I'm just questioning on the long-term viability and if it is the right value-based decision for these respective teams. When you consider the outside factors, you know, I'm trying to think like through each of these guys and say, here's all the things they do well, but here's all the things that could potentially go wrong in their careers. If Debo does decide, hey, I'm sorry, Kyle, no, we're, we're not lining up in the backfield anymore. then that's a huge hit. That, that is a huge hit. He's a good wide receiver but he's not at that elite tier that we're putting him at now if he was just to be on his pure wide receiver value. Part of his baked-in value is that he is so versatile, and that's one of his best attributes 
But then, of course, that also does bring up the injury concerns as well. But the problem is he could also get injured just being a wide receiver. When you look at his sophomore season, when he only played seven games, he was exclusively a wide receiver. He actually stayed healthier this year doing some work out of the running back position. And that could just be luck. Most of injuries are just boiled down to luck most of the time. But Debo does have an injury history that dates back to college. If I'm the Niners, I'm mostly in this position, which is, damn, can I at least see it one more year? Because we can basically throw the sophomore year out and your rookie season was good, not great. Now I saw one fantastic year. And if you're asking me to pay you now because, or not even pay you now, because again, these contract negotiations have gotten so ugly. I don't know what's right from wrong with it, but are you basically saying that you think it's only downhill from there? And that's like a prospect. If you're a team, why, why should I want to pay you now for something you did last year with the prospect of something that you're going to do for the next couple of years? Well, so perhaps this is the, the reason that Debo Samuel and the 49ers are far apart. I don't know. Like you, I don't know what's true and what's not from the reporting. Cause the first thing we heard was Debo. Debo wants a trade instead of hearing what was going on in the negotiation. So perhaps it's like if we operate under the assumption that he's a running back wide receiver hybrid, and therefore the 49ers are looking that as we can pay you like a running back. And Debo's saying, no, you're going to pay me for both positions. You're going to pay me like a wide receiver and a running back. Therefore, I am more valuable to your team than an average running back. And that's or average wide like, receiver. Is he going into this contract negotiation asking for somewhere around 30 million because he's trying to add the two positions together and come up with an amalgamation of value because that's some butchered science that I don't know if really adds up correctly. I would say I feel more comfortable paying you as elite of one of those positions and the more profitable position obviously is the wide receiver. And I think that that's something that we could both agree on because we knew this was coming down the road. But if you're then coming there and saying, I want to be paid as both an elite running back and an elite wide receiver, which adds up to somewhere in the $30 million range, which is something that Devontae Adams is getting. I love you, Debo. But right now, at this point in your career, you're not Devontae Adams. I think you're good. I think you could be as good as Devontae Adams, but you're not Devontae Adams. Ooh, that's, that's interesting. Because because where I would go is even at the wide receiver and running back positions, as you age into your late 20s, you don't get better, you get worse. And so a lot of the times in the running back and wide receiver market, you're paying for past performance instead of future performance. And you don't want to is... be the Cowboys. We talked about the Cowboys. You don't want to be in that position where you have essentially a Zeke Elliott on your roster and you're regretting every moment of it. Um, I'm not 100% in that camp, although I am, probably some percentage of both is like it's okay to move off of people and also being the Dallas Cowboys isn't that bad like it could be a whole lot worse than the Niners see themselves better than the Dallas Cowboys I think that's probably fair right and the 49ers they're up the thing that's interesting about the Debo negotiation is that they didn't think they'd have to pay Debo Samuel they they knew when they when they drafted Trey Lance last year and that was going to be we're not just going to get the quarterback potentially with a higher ceiling than Jimmy Garoppolo we're going to get him on the rookie contract for five years. When they did that, they knew Kittle was getting an extension. Trent Williams got a record-setting extension. Nick Bosa was going to get an extension. Fred Warner was going to get an extension. Armstead had already gotten an extension. Like They knew all of those players. They drafted. They wanted to keep. They didn't think that they'd have to give Debo this contract, and I think that's probably where they're going to the negotiating table and saying, this is the most we can offer you, and Debo's looking at it from, how can I maximize my value right now and secure that long-term money 
money so that my career can go longer. Cause I don't know why he wants to play at a wide receiver position. I think it's a reasonable request if it's to protect his long-term, but also if the 49ers are decreasing his value because they view him as a running back, then maybe he's trying to establish in the court of public opinion, I am a true wide receiver. I should be paid as such for the production that I, I, I think that that is probably what happened because literally at the Pro Bowl, when he was getting asked questions on the sidelines, he was talking about the wide back position as a point of pride. He was talking about it something that he's happy to put on his resume and tout himself about that I'm the only player, not just wide receiver, I'm the only player in the league that could do something like this and lead my team to victory. And literally here we are a month and a half later and things have completely shifted. And again, with the fact that we didn't even hear about the real negotiation part with it, we just went straight into trade requests. I I just wish I could be like a fly on the wall in those meetings and really evaluate what happened because it's really turned ugly quick. And you still look around the room, you still see John Lynn, you still see Kyle Shanahan. They're still positive that they could get something done. But Debo, you have the video of him in the nightclub, literally giving them the, no, it's not happening thing. So what what's to believe of that? And it's hard to say too, because the Niners, one thing that they've done really well over the Lynch and Shanahan administration is they've kept things really quiet. I didn't know the Trent Williams deal was happening. I didn't know the Buckner trade was happening. I didn't know any of these deals were happening until the day they happened. Jimmy we, people were saying on draft nowhere. day last year that Mac Jones was going to be the pick at number three. Like they literally concealed that all the way until the pick. <laughs> For all we know, as soon as we hit end on this recording session, Debo Samuel and the Niners could be a done deal after all the ugliness. It could just be like that done. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Joining us, a host of A2D Radio, a network dedicated to all things Philly sports. We're joined by Steve Reichel. Steve, are you going through it after these last couple games with Toronto, knowing Doc's resume? How are you feeling, man? I mean, this is this is the normal punishment for any Philadelphia fan. This is this is this has been this uh, this franchise's mo. Unfortunately, like you go up three three nothing. It's one of the things that uh, me and my guys were talking about leading into the playoffs. We were more concerned with Doc than we were, you know, the roster or chemistry or anything with with James Harden or anything anything like that. I'm more worried about Doc because it's his mo. And if you even look, you know, you go back to the previous coach, Brett Brown did, did, did a lot of things to help the Sixers get to to where they're at now. But, you know, unfortunately, he had the same MO, could, could not get anything done come playoff time. You know, love him, hate him, or indifferent about him. I mean, that, that's how it is. And Doc Rivers now is becoming legitimately famous for this now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is his resume is, is having good teams and falling apart in the playoffs. I mean, I mean, if I'm wrong, someone please come in and tell me. <laughs> Like you mentioned, Doc's MO, these last two games don't inspire a lot of confidence. But when you look at them, would you say that it's more good Raptors or bad 76ers? It's bad Sixers, but also like you look at this team and it, and it leads on Joe and, you know, Joe's a little banged up right now. So, and it's one of the things that, you know, we preach about, you know, we all, we all know Joe was on another level this year and that he he needed to bring in the playoffs. Now he's got the, the torn ligament in his hand. So he's going to have to 
kind of watch things of that nature. And here we go. We didn't, you know, we're not even out of the first round and Joe's dealing with an injury and the rest of the team has to stand up for whatever reason. Doc Rivers decides to put Matisse Tybo in. And uh, I think it was uh, game five for, you know, damn near 30 minutes because, you know, he he, he missed uh, he missed that road trip. I can't, I cannot fathom what, what, what what's going through the, this guy's head. I wouldn't say it's full panic mode uh, here here in Philadelphia. You know, we, we got another game before you. If it goes to seven, it's absolutely full, full panic mode and uh i i think uh regardless of how it ends whatever i, I think uh doc rivers uh should, should find employment elsewhere steve the biggest story more than the raptors series of the miami heat is to ellen bead's torn ligament in his thumb obviously last year in the playoffs he was dealing with the meniscus injury and that, that kind of followed them through the hawks series so how concerned are you about joel what are the thoughts around philadelphia about his injury you know i mean i i think it's it's 50 50 you know people are still up in the air about it you, you, we haven't really seen seen what it's going to be i mean I, I mean obviously we're starting to see see the wheels come off a little bit here didn't expect it to to go go six i mean I felt that the Raptors would win a game or two, but not in the in, in the manner that it, that it looked like it. When you go up three nothing and then you come back and and, and lo- lose two straight, like in in the manner that that, that you do, and and just look completely disinterested, unorganized basketball. And that falls back on the coach. But getting back to, to the injury, I think Joe will be fine. You know, I mean, obviously, he I don't think he's going to be going off for, you know, 47 points and, and things of that nature. But one of the things that I've also been saying about the, you know, playoffs in general, you don't mean James Harden to be near Hall of Fame player that that he, he was, you know, at the beginning of his career when he was in, in OKC, things of that nature. You just need to be him to be an above level all-star. You already have, have Tyrese Maxey there. If, if Tyrese bias Harris at least shows up majority the, the rest of the way you have a decent enough team to get get you at least to the to conference finals if not the NBA finals in my opinion we have to see it, how it plays out obviously and it wasn't it ain't looking good but it wasn't looking good a few weeks ago when when we were getting towards the end of the season everyone said everyone's sitting there saying that you know the, the world is burning the, this team is hot and cold at times but you know they should be capable of of dispatching of the, the Toronto Raptors. Well, you said that James doesn't even play like that Hall of Famer that he will eventually be. But in his last press conference, Joel Embiid called for James Harden to be more aggressive. And we love that Joel so honest in his assessments of his teammates, but sometimes that can backfire. We saw that with Ben Simmons last year. Do you think that James will step up st- or shrink? <laughs> Falling in beats, call to action. Listen, uh, I think James Harden will, will will step up. I mean, like I said, he doesn't have to be the guy here. He doesn't even have to be the second guy here. He just ha- ha- has to be that above level. And Joe Joe calling him out, absolutely expected. He's the face of this team. He's been the face of this franchise, and he is the 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 undoubted leader of it. And you're sitting there saying it backfired. No, Ben Simmons is a is a giant soft little crybaby. He's been sitting there stealing money from not only the Sixers and the NBA. And the fact is, the fact of the matter that he's holding under the guise of, of mental illness. When you have guys in this city like Lane Johnson and 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 you know his brother Brooks, who just who just retired this past season, who's been been guys who've been in this community and outward advocate for mental health uh, awareness. It is absolutely sickening what Ben Simmons has done to the Sixers, to the NBA, everybody. It is 
is an absolute farce, and I cannot wait for, for, for him to, to finally have to face the music at some point in time. If I was the NBA, I would have I would have demanded a, 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 a separate doctor, you know, from the league give, give an assessment and see what is what the, to see if, if that guy's going to get paid for the season. I don't believe he should. Get, getting back to it, I, I'm glad that things have played out the way they are. You know, he's one of those guys that's just, he's not meant for Philly. James Harden, we don't know. He might be a guy that's meant for Philly. I'm sure he, he loves the, the nightlife here and things of that nature we're gonna see what happens in this in this playoff series joe's the the, the leader it's going it's going to live and die, die or joe he's gonna to have to overcome deficiencies in himself right now and and potentially doc rivers well now that we're three months into the james harden experiment how do you feel about how things have played out thus far given what they had to give up to get him and the production they've kind of seen between him and Embiid? I mean, I, I'm fine with with not only the, the the trade, uh, you know how how he's fit in here. Like I said, I think with the ascension of of, of Mad Max Tyrese Maxey the, 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 this season, you know, arguably should have been one of the most improved players in the NBA. Another postseason award that the Sixers were, were robbed of this season. Maxey, despite crybaby soft boy, you know, sitting there sitting on the sidelines with with his hurt feelings, Max ascended the, the, this year. You know, not you know, I'm not sitting there saying he's going to be be a perennial All Star, but or anything like that or a superstar but he ascended it this year and and the fact that the way you that that team works out like i said you still have, have tobias harris there there too he needs to be held held accountable for and and step up and do things of that nature we're, we're gonna see man it's it's good it's getting down to it we're, we're gonna see what this team's made of and and if that trade ultimately backfires i don't feel like the Sixers game gave up gave up too much and i feel at, the, at this point in time the the nets are, are, are gonna have uh sellers remorse soon well, you mentioned him a couple times, so let's talk about Doc Rivers. Doc's name came up in the Lakers coaching search after Frank Vogel was dismissed. So at this point, do you think it's championship or bust this season? I mean, it, in Philadelphia, obviously, it, the way they're playing, I don't know if, if you're, you're even going to get past the Bucks. It's kind of the real problem that, that, that you're looking, looking at right now. But it, it's something that, like I said, it's gonna, we're going we're gonna to live and die on Joe. Yes, uh, I think uh, – in Philadelphia, yeah, it might be the only way that, that Doc says the job is is a championship. A lot of people are calling for his name. A lot of people are sitting there saying that the, the surprise retirement of Jay Wright could be could be an ultimate sign that he is gonna going to be taking that Sixers job if it, it you know wasn't planned or anything. You know, I, I retired all, all of a sudden. You know, you know the wheels completely fall off here in Philadelphia. Doc goes, gets fired, goes back out to L.A. You have a guy like 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 Harden there, or on your own staff. Can Sam Cassell coach this team? Is, is that even possible? Who knows? Like I said, a lot of questions swirling around this team. This is going to be an interesting, not only NBA playoff and finals, but off season. It's 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 a fun time to be a sports fan, regardless of uh, NBA and NFL. You know, obviously drafts coming around the corner has been one of the craziest off season. It's going to be a lot of fun. So how do you feel about the play of Tyrese Maxey? Because you mentioned him when you were talking about Harden and company. He had an awesome game one, awesome game two. He's kind of faded to the background in the three games since. So still kind of being the, the third scorer. Him and Tobias have taken a bunch of shots, kind of trading off. So how do you feel about Maxi's development? Like I said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on that. I think he's on an ascending star status, potential all-star. We'll see what happens. I, I like his game. We're only in year two with him. He's on a good trend move, moving upward compared to where you've seen the Sixers have make, make picks and, you know, things don't quite work out at, you know, a, a la 
by Markel Folks, who's absolutely destroying it down there in Orlando. I think now you have your final pieces of what what, what is going to be the processes in Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey. We'll see what happens with Tobias Harris this this offseason, but I think Maxey and Harden and Embiid are going to be like your three guys that you're going to see uh, moving forward, at least over the next three years. Looking ahead, assuming that Toronto doesn't make NBA history, the next matchup is the Miami Heat. How does Philly match up against Miami? I mean, I think it's a fun matchup. I mean, you know, Miami's obviously uh, giving us troubles over there. You you, you still have uh, Jimmy Butler, who, uh, you know, is always always a guy who, who uh, p- plays up in the playoffs. And, you know, at least since he left here, has been kind of a thorn in our side. So it's going to be a fun matchup. If it is, if it winds up being the Sixers in Miami, you know, I'll go back and sit there saying it should be the Sixers and six you still have to watch the uh the injury win and beat it it's going to live and die all, all, off of joel as much as you need production from those other other guys he's going to be the 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 tone setter you know he you know he's been getting a lot of praise over over this season we've been here you know figureheads calling him the seven foot Kobe Bryant after that big shot that down, down there in toronto but like this is one of those things man it's it, it's going to be interesting I, I like them over over miami like i said the way they're playing right now though you don't know and i still think it'll be a rough one but it should be six sixers and six all right how do you feel about how the rest of the eastern conference is shaking out to this point because boston's got the sweep done we we assume milwaukee's gonna whoop ass and advance in game five tonight how you feeling that should be a really fun series especially the way boston's playing but again i'll I'll stay with stay with the way Giannis is playing the way the the bucks are defending champions i think they'll make work of boston that should be a fun series it should go six seven games in the in the bucks favor especially with the way Boston's playing, but anything that happened this is the NBA playoffs. But uh, I, I'm I'm going to stick with the, the the champions getting to the Eastern Conference Finals, and it should hopefully be Sixers Bucks. Hopefully. All right, Steve, go ahead and give us the obligatory plugs. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, you know, anyone who wants to, you know, show us some love, please make sure you, you head over to uh, our HUD YouTube channel. We're, we're approaching uh, uh, 8K subscriptions there, you know, just past 2 million views this past weekend. So appreciate the the, the already current love that we got. Uh, make sure you're, you're checking us out, out on, on uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, pretty much where, wherever you, you can find us. I, I'm, I'm there on, uh, you know, at Steve's uh, Sports Talk 1. You know, I, I'm on every Saturday night. Uh, on HUD Radio on the weekly roundup, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern. My, my man, Zach Bird, Daniel Bakley, getting in the thing. Typically ha- have at least w- one interview on, you know, somewhere in sports, regardless if it's, uh, you know, NFL veteran, NBA veteran, or, you know, you know we all have some fighters on from time to time. But o- o- always having fun over here on HUD. We give you pretty much just about anything you can ask for, from soccer to hockey, from it all. And also appreciate the, the time here this afternoon with you guys. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. All righty, we are into week two of the NBA playoffs. Like last week, we have our eight headlines, our eight takeaways from each respective series. I'm going to start things off in the Eastern Conference with the number one seed. Next man up, Miami shows depth against the Hawks. Uh, Kyle Lowry out, Jimmy Butler out. Didn't matter. They were still able to put away Trey Young and company pretty handily. In fact, Trey Young had a miserable series. I think he had more turnovers than buckets in the entirety of all five games of that series. So overall, 
bad showing by Atlanta. I thought it was going to be a little bit tighter, a little bit closer. And the defense on that last play, absolutely suffocating. So Miami did their job. Next man in the rotation stepped up, whether that's Oladipo, Bam. Next series, Joel needs a dock, but it might not be Rivers. Rivers came out with a very fiery statement yesterday when his postseason resume was brought up. Currently, the 76ers are facing a game six where obviously they're going to be down a man. Matisse Thibel is going to be out again. Still very likely that they're going to walk away with the series win. But the fact that we're even at this point, the fact that we even have to question after a 3-0 lead in a series, whether or not the 76ers are going to advance is very problematic towards their actual title run. James Harden looks a little bit slow and Joel is in fact hurt. Dealing with ligament damage in his thumb that will probably require surgery, but he said he will forego it till the end of the postseason. And through the first two games with that thumb injury they are 0-2 so whether that's affecting the 76ers I, I guess we'll see but big game tonight championship blood matters in times of adversity I think that's a perfect synopsis for the Milwaukee Bucks against the Chicago Bulls they wrapped up their five-game series with three dominating performances down the stretch. We figured it was going to be an easy series for them to coast by, but the biggest loss, of course, is going to be Chris Middleton, and that is going to affect their long-term playoff chances. In fact, Chris Middleton has just been ruled out officially for the Celtics-Milwaukee series as of today. Nonetheless, against Chicago, against a team that they were infinitely better than, the Milwaukee Bucks stepped up and got the victory. And then finally, for my Boston Celtics, Boston breaks out brooms in Brooklyn. Got to get some alliteration in a headline. Boston did what they had to do, suffocating defense. KD having one of his worst playoff series ever, reminiscent almost of LeBron James against the Mavericks his first year with the Heat. Kyrie was basically invisible for the last three games. He scored less than 20 all three games. And overall, when you look at how much praise and adulation the Brooklyn Nets were having going into the series, and what Boston was able to do for them, it was a big-time statement victory. Whether that propels them to banner number 18 or not, at the very least, Jason Tatum really showed that he's in that next generation of stars coming up. Jalen Brown had a good series. Good to see Robert Williams back. And great showing overall by the Boston Celtics. Why are the 76ers the way that they are? Why is this the case? Because I, I know I said 76ers in six originally. And to be honest, I kind of did that because I was a little afraid of the idea of the Philadelphia 76ers actually being a fair matchup for the Toronto Raptors. I thought the Sixers would destroy that, them in this series. And they did do that. And now they're just giving it all back. Now, in fairness, most people might be listening to this and the Sixers have advanced and there's no uh, cause for concern. The Sixers just caused themselves so much annoying pain over the last eight days, one by losing those two games. And also because Doc Rivers just like drove the bus over his former teams and then backed it up on him again. After last year, he ran the bus over Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid backed it up on Ben Simmons. So yeah, I am amazed that the Sixers are in this terrible position when this wasn't even the hard series that the, the Miami one was supposed to be the one that derailed them. Not this one, not these last eight days. They should have been coasting and doing light practices for eight days. Anyways, Milwaukee was going to win that series all the way through. Very fascinated by Chicago because not everyone can win a championship in the NBA and Chicago spent like $400 million and three first round picks to build a team that could win one playoff game. And I have to say, I, I like that they were willing to do that instead of just continuing to be bad. It was at least fun to watch the Bulls this year. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Boston, Brooklyn. We talked about that enough. We don't need to talk about that anymore. I'm already, already wrong enough. Uh, 
who's left? Who's the number one seed? Miami, that they beat the Hawks. I really love that game three of the series. Game three of the Heat Hawks series was probably the most fun game, non Brooklyn Boston game one that I've watched so far in the playoffs. I think Memphis and Minnesota game five is up there too. But that game three between Miami and Atlanta was super fun and had like 20 0 Heat run and 17 to 2 run for the Hawks to end the game and Trey Young hitting the floater at the end. It was a fun game, even if it was the only semblance of pride for the Atlanta Hawks because the Hawks were like a five seed last year. They did nothing. And then Boston got better. Miami got better and Chicago got better. And so they just got bounced in the first round and Trey Young played kind of bad in those games. So yeah, turned out all right though. Well, that's the big problem with Atlanta, right? If Trey is not on, then they just can't win. I mean, John Collins is a fine number two, number three, probably closer to number four. What I call him, what I call him is John Collins is a player you use to trade for a player better than John Collins. Yeah, John, John Collins, yeah, obviously they got Clint Capella back in the series, but it was just never really enough. And the problem is with a guy like Trey Young, he needs to be the focal point in offense. He needs to be the thing that propels you on offense. And the fact that he, again, he had more turnovers than he had buckets in the series is a net deficit because he's not going to win you any games with his defensive play. So if you have a guy that's both killing you offensively and killing you defensively, and he's the star of your team, then you're just not going to win. And it was just not going to be a winning recipe for them against the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat advance, and now they're in this position where, regardless of what happens tonight with the 76ers, I believe that they're going to be getting a weekend version of the 76ers. And then the, the Doc Rivers thing, listen, uh, you get credit for being up 3-1 as an eight seed with the Orlando Magic, sure. But statistically, and statistically over time, when you're up 3-1 in a series, you usually win that series. The fact he has multiple 3 one comebacks on him the only NBA coach in NBA history that has that on their resume and there's been only I believe three or four instances where a team has battled back to game seven after being down 0-3 if that happens too then you are historically bad of a playoff joker. I know we talked about like narratives and how narratives are crafted, but to a certain extent, I mean, come on, man. Now we have a track record. Now it's like a he's also thing. responsible for three of the six like most memorable collapses in the history of the NBA playoffs. And you had historically good players on those teams as well. Obviously, the Clippers, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, Paul George probably less so, but Kawhi Leonard's obviously gonna be a Hall of Famer when he is done with his career. You know, to have that collapse with the Clippers was bad. And then you look at the collapse with the Celtics when you have the big three still intact. Not a good for your playoff resume to have those two. The Orlando one is the most minimalist, but he also has multiple three, two collapses. It's not just the three, one collapses. It's also the three, two collapses. They're also part of his resume. That's on the list, right? Remember the game where LeBron arrived in 2011, where he had like 45 points in a triple double while down three, two. That's like one of the most famous games in NBA history. That's all part of the stories. I understand why Doc would be a little defensive about it, but before this big game, you had that fiery of a comment. It puts like almost a target on your back. You know, we talked about giving other teams motivation. Now you have the scrappy Raptors team that thinks they have a chance and whether we believe they do or they don't, now they're looking at this one like now we could really just drive that stake into Doc Rivers' heart. Just don't well, give the other even- team any bulletin board material. I, I know we talked about whether motivation is a factor. Just don't give any Anything more to the other team. I mean, even yeah, if it's a Doc's neutral, also you don't fighting need to give for his a- anything extra. Yes, he's coaching for his career. He is legitimately because if they lose this series, it's done. I don't see how he gets any other job 
in the NBA. He's almost got that Jeff Fisher toxic mark on him that I, I think even regardless of his top 15 all-time NBA status, you, you just have to start factoring that in. The one championship with the Boston Celtics, I don't think outweighs all of that all of that bad postseason resume. He'd be, he'd be in what I like to call Urban Meyer purgatory, which is the only jobs you can get are jobs that this stage of his life, he doesn't really want to take. He doesn't want to go coach the Charlotte Hornets. Like Doc Rivers would rather go play golf and retire than go coach the Charlotte Hornets. Now, if it's the Lakers, maybe that's another question. I still but... don't get that one. I still don't get why Doc would be associated with the Lakers, considering the only way he would have ended up with the Lakers is if the 76ers fired him after another postseason collapse. Oh, but so it but really here's didn't the make thing. sense in that respect. I understand that, yeah. yes, he... LeBron, oh. led GM, probably wants someone that he could ultimately use as a puppet. Doc might win this series against Toronto and still get bounced in philadelphia because oh if they go they down don't like five against miami then that still doesn't make the series any better i mean we we talked about it obviously yesterday so it doesn't sound like doc is on the soundest of footing as it is right now again we've talked enough about the boston celtics nets uh, stay tuned for the rest of this episode you'll you'll get a listen in to our conversation with john zanis of cns media about the series and the bucks hearing that chris middleton is ruled out now does change the complexity of that series and we kind of touched on that a little bit in that interview as well. So I think it's time we kick it on to the Western Conference. Kyle, tell me about your takeaways from the West. Last part about the Eastern Conference. Celtics are heavy favorites against the Milwaukee Bucks, according to Vegas, which was surprised me a little bit. So they do value Chris Middleton quite a bit. Now for the Western Conference. Number one, Jazz have dropped the ball versus Dallas because Utah had everything in front of them to move on in this series. I said at the very beginning of the series, when the Utah Jazz were up 1-0 against the Dallas Mavericks, I was watching the Nets Celtics game and they showed on the screen the graphic for the the Monday game two. And it was Donovan Mitchell and Jalen Brunson. And I, in that moment, I said Jazz in five, because if Jalen Brunson is the best player on the Mavericks, oh boy, it is over. And lo and behold, Jalen Brunson is the leading scorer of the entire NBA postseason. Up to this point. Yeah, the the Utah Jazz have really dropped the ball on this one, combined with the fact that Luka came back healthy. They won a game in which Luka had 30 and 10 in his first game back, thanks to the lob to Rudy Gobert in game four. And they proceeded in game five to shoot 10% from the three-point line. I have literally never seen a number that bad in my entire life, and that includes the game where the Rockets shot 0 for 27 from three for a stretch of the game. 10% from the three-point line for the Utah Jazz. It was so bad. And Dallas is going to get to advance. And by the way, we're all better for it that Dallas gets to advance in the playoffs. Dallas and Luka are really fun to watch. They just need a volume scorer as their number two. Last year, it was Tim Hardaway. This year, it was Jalen Brunson. They're going to be really fun to watch, especially if they match up against Phoenix in round two. What's disappointing is Utah had it right there and they've just let it go altogether with a 10% three-point shooting game in game five, which whoever wins game five wins the series. 80% of the time. Speaking of winning game fives and winning the series 80% of the time, Ja Morant storming back in Grind City. The Grizzlies find themselves now up three games to two at the time of recording on the Minnesota Timberwolves. And it is really, really fun basketball going on in this series. And that's the best compliment I can give for it. It's blowing leads. It's 
Carl Towns is either putting up amazing performances and destroying Jaron Jackson Jr., one of the best defensive players in the league, or he's putting up nine points and fouling out with seven minutes in the game. And then sometimes, like in game five, Jaron Jackson fouls out with five minutes left in game five. So it's a really fun back and forth. The end of that game was absolutely insane in game five. People complain all the time about basketball doesn't matter for the first 43 minutes, that the last five minutes are the only part that matters. I think that was probably the stereotype in game five, where the first 43 minutes were kind of irrelevant. And then you got a magical final five minutes in a pivotal game. And you got John Morant hitting the game winning layup and a star being born in basketball the same way Luca hit that buzzer beater in the bubble for Dallas. Oh, it was such a fun game. Memphis is going to win the series because the only hope Minnesota had was probably to win either that game four where they had a double digit lead or that game five. But damn, if it hasn't been fun to watch so far, even if Memphis is the team that advances, Golden State Warriors played the Joker for a fool. Denver didn't have much of a chance, not just because they lost two of their three best players, really three of their four best players, if you want to go all the way down the line there. But they lose three of their four best players and Jokic is playing with Will Barton as his second best player. But that would discredit the amazing basketball that the Golden State Warriors played over these past two-ish weeks. It's been really, really great to watch. I think Golden State is probably the Western Conference favorites given what's going on with Phoenix right now. And Golden State is probably going to be favored in a series against Memphis at the very least. I think that Steph Curry coming off the bench was a nice little supplement they had with the different rotations mixed in. And the Warriors aren't quite as deep as they used to be. Obviously, we talk about Jordan Poole and we haven't talked much about Wiggins recently because Wiggins has gone down a bit. Clay and Kevon Looney slides in there and Otto Porter, but they, they don't have the same depth that we're used to. And so Steph Curry off the bench is an interesting little way for them to balance their offense. And Steph's still playing tons of minutes. It's just the, the lineup that he goes in with to start. It's a interesting combo the Warriors have there. Denver, Jokic can be a free agent after next year. So we'll, we'll find out this summer how much he wants to stay in Denver, even though he said that he wants to stay for the long run. Denver will be a championship contender as long as they get like Porter back healthy, Murray back healthy. Just add like one more piece, like go trade for like Gallinari from the Hawks. That's all you need. You can probably be a competitive basketball team, like championship competitive basketball team. And finally, can the Phoenix Suns write the book on the New Orleans Pelicans? Because it looks like Devin Booker might be back for game six of this series that probably should have been done by now. But because Devin Booker got injured in game one or two, I can't remember which game it was, but early on in the series, Devin Booker went out and it's about a four to six week injury for Devin Booker to start feeling healthy again. And he might come back after a week and a half to get it done for Phoenix. I know Phoenix has had a couple of close calls so far in the series, especially I think it was game four when Chris Paul played really really bad. They had a couple close calls in there. We'll see what happens in game six, I think is tonight. It'll be interesting to see how Phoenix can close it out. A series that they didn't think would be stressful, but they should still be able to close out because I love Brandon Ingram, but Brandon Ingram being your best player doesn't connote confidence against some of the best teams in the Western Conference. So that's what's gone on in the last week out West. Obviously, for the Pelicans, Brandon Ingram is not supposed to be their best player. That's supposed to be Zion Williamson. And how close this series is, it is disappointing to see that they weren't able to try a ramp up towards a comeback because who knows? They might have been able to sneak past the Phoenix Suns with how this series has played out. In Game 5, great performance by Mikel Bridges. CP3 had a little bit of a bounce-back effort, and that's part of the problem since Booker's been out. CP3 has been inconsistent. You talk about the bad Game 4 
but he also did take control in game three to kind of elevate them in that game to kind of get them off their initial snide after uh, Booker went down. I was thinking about this too when, when I was thinking about the West. Um, you talked about the Suns' issues. I don't know if I trust bringing Booker back this early off a hamstring injury. I think you have enough firepower to be able to work past the Pelicans and just look towards the next round. But as we advance and if it doesn't quite get right, I think the Warriors are my favorite in the West. I think Warriors win West made the most sense to me when I was thinking about the internally headlines in my mind because the Memphis Grizzlies, they showed that they still have holes to fix in their roster during this Timberwolves series. The fact that they were even down by double digit points. And yes, we talked about those double digit runs seem to happen more and more in basketball, certainly with, with the three point revolution, you can overcome any margin, but they shouldn't have been in those spots either way. So it shows kind of an immaturity that the Grizzlies still have to work past. And that will come with time because we said that they were probably a year ahead of schedule as is. And I was expecting this one to be a close series overall I still think it could go to game seven I picked the Grizzlies in seven so I'm still technically on track for a potential victory in that prediction but they do not look ready to compete with the Golden State Warriors in fact the Golden State Warriors I believe ended the regular season with some victories over the Memphis Grizzlies while some of their best players were out uh you look in the other side of the bracket with what the Suns might have to deal with with uh Luka because it is looking like the Utah Jazz are just giving up the Utah Jazz have sung their last note they're done it's over Um, (laughs) I see what you did yeah I had to get a little bit of a musical pun in there you know had to pick up my teammate here (laughs) but no I I think the Utah Jazz you talk about 10% from three-point range that is pathetic that looks like the Utah Jazz have to uh, face the music yeah wow that was good that was a good one see that should have been in the headline Kyle that should have been the headline no it's okay I like Um, drop the ball better because it connotes the fact that they shot 10% from the three-point line in game five which I cannot emphasize enough just how stupid that is that they shot 10% from the three-point line that's three for 30. I watched that game and some of the three attempts to they they were just kind of chucking the ball too it it wasn't like they were missing wide open threes just got no they were just chucking they were get the ball and like okay and especially because the Mavericks got that little bit of a run where they were up double digit points. Obviously you have to do a little bit extra to come back in that game. Uh, Donovan Mitchell's making bad shots. And the fact that he's being exploited in isolation doesn't bode well for teams that are interested in pursuing Donovan Mitchell as the focal point of their team, because he's a great offensive scorer. We mentioned his playoff statistics. That he's averaging over 33 points a game for the entirety of his playoff career. But the other team is practically averaging 40 points against him on just isolation plays. That's a problem. And then obviously the fact that teams now know how they can exploit Rudy Gobert. And I feel like Rudy takes too much on the chin because he still is an all NBA center, but he can get picked on with small ball lineups and the Utah Jazz, as much as I gave credit to Quinn Snyder in previous seasons, he's just not fast enough to adjust when Rudy's getting exploited. And now you're seeing the Mavericks be able to do it. And I'll say this too, because I feel like we maybe were disrespectful on previous podcasts to the supporting cast of the Dallas Mavericks in Luka's absence. Jalen Brunson, Spencer Dinwiddie, these guys aren't exactly Mo Williams or Anderson Barajal. There was a good reason for them being a 50-win team. There was talks about Jalen Brunson being a popular trade candidate around the deadline. So there was other teams that wanted him. There was other teams that obviously wanted Porzingis. The Mavericks made the right move. They traded off Porzingis, got back Spencer Dinwiddie, and helped the overall flow of the team. So they have 
enough pieces to be able to obviously compete in Luca's absence. Now that Luca's back and Luca's put up, I believe, two 30 point performances since he's been back each respect. 30 and 10 and the 33 point triple double. Yeah. So now it's just back to business. I I think now we're really starting to see the Utah Jazz were just never really good enough to stand with the Mavericks when fully healthy. We just thought that the Utah Jazz were good enough to stand with the Mavericks when they were not fully healthy. And we were in error of that decision. Clearly, we put too much faith in the Utah Jazz, like Utah fans do every single year. The Mavericks are going to be interesting in round two, assuming they get past the Jazz, assuming nothing crazy happens. Again, Devin Booker's just going to be limping into that series. If you're a believer in Luka making a marvelous playoff run to the finals, this might be your best shot to do it. Or at the very least, I believe in Luca more than I believe in Chris Paul, because you mentioned how Chris Paul played poorly in, uh, I think it was game four of the series where he had like four points in the game. That's closer to the player Chris Paul is, not the four point game, but Chris Paul is a player that's going to go sometimes 28 points, sometimes 10 points. That's closer to the player Chris Paul is now at 36 years old. And there's no shade there. Like that's just, he's now only one of the 25 to 30 best players in the end. NBA instead of one of the 10. He, he elevates your best score. And when your best score is sidelined, that hurts the continuity of the roster. And as much as we talk about like, can Jason Tatum do it every single night and become a superstar? Well, Chris Paul can't do it every single night anymore because Chris Paul's not that type of player. And that's like totally okay. Chris Paul is part of the reason you're a one seed in the first place is, is because he's incredibly valuable as a number two. And I think it's really interesting how that dynamic with the Suns has worked over the past few games, you know, bring it back to Dallas, like what Dallas essentially needs, because Luca, Luca is a bigger part of their offense, I think, than even LeBron was for the Lakers this past year. So their their offense runs almost exclusively more than any other team through Luca. What's, what it seems like they need around him, which is the case last year and this year, is just give him a volume scorer, like a volume scorer around him. Last year, it was Tim Hardaway who averaged like 23 points a game in the playoffs. And this year, it's Jalen Brunson who's giving you 29 because Luca didn't play the first couple games, I guess the first three games. And that's essentially the, the pairing you should put around Luca in the absence of a true second star, which I think is more what the Mavericks need than anything else is they need someone like Paul George to come play alongside Luka Doncic. Essentially, Paul George is like a, a volume scorer who plays good defense, though. So I guess like it's just a better version of a volume scorer. And Jalen Brunson is enough for them to remain competitive. It's not like what the Nuggets had where the Nuggets were just a train wreck of a team with this like just magical MVP in his prime. Like they they at least had something to, to build off of there. So I think the volume score thing is going to help Dallas once they get to the next round and beyond because they're going to probably have to replace Jalen Brunson or attach a pick to trade Tim Hardaway or something like that this offseason because they, they gave Hardaway the extension and I don't actually think they should give Jalen Brunson the extension because you have a better chance of finding another Jalen Brunson than you do to find another, say, Porzingis or say finding another Paul George or someone like that. You've got a better chance of finding another Jalen Brunson. As for the Utah Jazz, looks like they need a tune-up this offseason. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Joining us today, the Vice President and Content Director of CLNS Media and host of The Garden Report, we bring you John Zanis as we put the final nail in the coffin of the 2022 Brooklyn Nets. John, I know you are a little cautious heading into the series, <laughs> pump the brakes a little on the hype. At what point did you know the Celtics weren't looking back? 
I love that. That's my and guys, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Kyle Julian. It's funny, that's the reputation that follows me around here. You know, I know you put it as cautious. You know, my the people in our chat will call me the pessimist, but it wasn't so much about whether the Celtics would win it, because I actually did predict the Celtics would win the series. I, I think like most people, just thought it was going to be really competitive. And in fact, it was competitive for a sweep. It was the third closest sweep in NBA history. Uh, in terms of point differential. So I've seen seven game series more lopsided than this, but that's beyond the point. My feeling was Brooklyn was the only team the Celtics could play in the first round that I thought had a puncher's chance of beating the Celtics, whereas I didn't think any other team did. Push came to shove. I'd say the other reason for some caution was you really wanted to see the Celtics. It's not the Celtics needed to prove it all over again, but you needed to see them play competitive games in tight fourth quarters and execute when the stakes are really big without their full lineup. And there was something we needed to see first in order to have confidence they would do it. I would say, even though the games were relatively close and, you know, they, you know, game one, they maybe sort of, you know, could have, should have lost game two. Again, they're down 17 points, their ability to come back and to close and to out execute teams in the fourth quarter was easily the most important thing I think that happened in that series from a Celtics fan perspective that you have to feel really good about is these are games not only were they losing in the first 45 plus games of the season all of last year too and in fact dating all the way back to the bubble against Miami in the conference finals there where they just blew lead after lead after lead that kind of felt like it was in the Celtics DNA and they're and it's not anymore they out execute out hustle out perform teams in the fourth quarter and they did it in each game here uh, with Brooklyn every time Brooklyn countered Celtics had something and that was really impressive so I would say after game two, the short answer, yes, you felt, wow, they snuck out that first one. Then they came back from 17 points down to win game two. I just think they're going to find a way to win whatever. That being said, I did think Brooklyn was going to maybe sneak out a game, but I think the sweep was definitely within the realm of possibility once they left Boston. You're better than me. I I think I saw in your post game, you said you picked them in six. I picked them in seven. So I took a more cautious approach than even you did. Um, But part of the story, obviously, for the Celtics has just been the defensive renaissance since January, they have 106.7 defensive rating, which is first in the NBA. And honestly, like really good in a historical context as well. Fill in the blank here. How good is this Celtics defense? How good is it since insert blank? I know a lot of people will put like, you know, the the, the bad boy Pistons teams in here. I don't like making historical um, comparisons with this team. I just know that this year for this moment in this league they're really freaking good because the switchability what Ime came in trying to do at the beginning of the year with playing all of those switches they were botching that they were having a really difficult time communicating things weren't working for them and at some point it clicked and like I I think a lot of it had to do with uh Marcus Smart kind of had a real turnaround kind of I wouldn't say change of heart, but I really do think he got spooked by the trade deadline rumors and did a total about face where, you know, at his best, Marcus Smart is the player you see right now. Most times he's kind of this erratic guy that has driven people mad over the course of a six, seven year career uh, with his inconsistencies, gambling turnovers, you know, jacking too many threes. But Marcus turned it up a notch. Jalen and Jason finally bought in. And again, I think that's the thing is you have these guys physically who, when they want to play defense, 
are incredible defenders, both Jalen Brown uh, and Jason Tatum, both as team defenders and individual defenders. I feel like they bought in and around that time too. And then Ime made that one switch where he took Rob out of the middle, put him on a, the, the non-shooting wing and let him kind of play free safety on that defense, wreak havoc and just come in all over the place and block shots out of nowhere. And that completely changed the complexion of the defense and of the season. I mean, you talk about that defensive rating. They had a stretch there where their defensive rating with their starting five on the floor was something like 92 or something obscene. So that starting five was just suffocating. They were just putting teams lights out early. And it looked like there'd be six guys. That's the thing that's most impressive because of all of the switching, wherever you go, there's another guy there. It feels like you're playing defense against six or seven guys when it's running at its best. And that's what Brooklyn ran into that's the reason Kevin Durant got passive wasn't because he quit it's because everywhere he went there was another guy there and it's just kind of like you open a door and there's another one another like he couldn't get free ever and after a while it gets demoralizing and I really do think they kind of just you know eventually over time just wear teams down with it so again historically I don't know where it stands but it's the best defense in the NBA right now and there's not a lot of flaws with it like they can defend any type of lineup, any type of team. So let's talk about Tatum for a second, because I I've thought that part of the defensive increase for the Celtics was the fact that Tatum is now yes. not quite an all NBA defender, but, but pretty really close, close to an all NBA defender. And obviously he's clearly the number one. He's scoring 27 points a game. And right. the thing that was most interesting after game one was when he put up 31 and had the game winner. It's like that can be replicated every night from Jason Tatum. It's it's not a 45 pointer to win any game in this series. It was always just 39 here, 31 there, 28 over here. So how do you feel about how Tatum has evolved, I guess over the last year or so, but I guess more specifically kind of in the last two months where the Celtics went from like, as I said, middle of the road team in the East to championship contender. Yeah. Tatum's another one that's, that's super interesting because I know he's, He's Boston's own. You drafted him. You know, everybody here feels great about it because it was you pulled the fast one over Philly and you dropped down to three and took the guy you wanted and got more stuff out of it and blah, blah, blah. So he's a massive victory just because of what the Celtics were able to pull off just to get him here. Uh, But I mean, there are stretches of his game that I think were frustrating at times. uh, And people would always the knock on him early, like at the beginning of the year when he was shooting poorly and the team wasn't playing well was. The guy only cares about his stats. And I never agreed with that. I always thought that he knew one way to impact the game. And that was give me the ball. Let me do my thing. And, you know, let me cook, so to speak. And like when he finally let go of that, he realized like, oh, not only if I give the ball up, might I get it back? But like not always having the ball in my hands and doing other things, it's a much more uh, effective way to, to affect winning. And so he started doing the other things to affect winning. And I think it kind of took, but like it wasn't happening for a while. It really was this strange kind of, you know, switch that got flipped there where you saw him start to, you know, share the ball a little bit more and distribute. And again, that's what that's what Udoka said coming through. Two things he wants. Play your ass off on defense, share the ball. I don't give a crap what else happens. That's all. Those are the two things I need. As soon as he started doing that, it was easier for everyone to start doing that. Part of that was letting Marcus run the point a little bit more and not having the ball as much in Tatum's hands necessarily, you know, just to isolate and get out of the way. 
Tatum making quicker decisions with the ball, you know, making the right pass. I mean, he made some elite passes last game and it's just easy. I mean, even one that comes to mind, little spin move on Kyrie and then just kind of instantly sees Horford there with someone 6'2 guarding him in the post and just floats it to him for a, a, a gimme layup. I mean, these are things that he's recognizing these, these things so quickly. So between the distributing and then just upping the intensity on defense, he impacts the game in, in every way instead of just, the previous Tatum was, yeah, he can drop 45 on you anytime. I mean, the best versions of Tatum we saw is when he went on those runs where he was just knocking down 40, 45, 50. And we've seen that from him. And now you're seeing kind of complete package sort of games from him. It's what I mean, he's going to finish first team all NBA. And it's because of all that other stuff. It's not just because of his scoring. You mentioned a guy that's going to be instrumental in the Celtic success. That's going to be Robert Williams. And every Celtics fan, including myself, was relieved to see him back in game three. In right. game three, he looked explosive. He kind of looked like old Rob. But in game four, I don't know if it was just me, but I felt like he wasn't great at finishing at the basket. I, I felt like the Nets were beating him to the punch there. Did you kind of notice that? How did you feel about him coming back off a month layoff? And what do you project for him in the Milwaukee series? He, he looks off like his timing. So I think getting those two games, it was almost best case scenario. They were winning without him. They put him in in a low pressure situation. He was coming off the bench. I think they were going to consider upping his minutes in game two. Wasn't really working. The Grant lineup was working a bit better and they kind of kept him at what they kept him as. But you're right. It's not eye popping Robert Williams yet. You're not seeing that stuff where his just athleticism affects the game in so many different ways. He looks like his timing is a little bit off where he's supposed to be reacting to things. A couple times he doubled when he shouldn't have doubled and, you know, came off rather than stayed home. So I think it's just, like I said, I really think it's just a matter of rhythm and timing. I didn't look physical per se. He looked like he was moving relatively well. But I mean, again, best case scenario, two games under his belt to kind of get his legs under him and game action, plus five, six more games to kind of continue to ramp up conditioning and get ready. I'd be surprised if he's not back in the starting lineup for the Milwaukee series. I actually thought it was even possible they would have started him in game two. I mean, game four, his second game of his return against Brooklyn. I'm not super worried. I don't know if you guys are, if you saw something different. So I'm interested in that because the defensive matchups for the Celtics are going to be interesting against Milwaukee. Um, one of the things that's in, obviously Giannis is Giannis and they might have three players like guarding him when he drives into the lane and all this interesting stuff. But Robert Williams is interesting for how they build out that defense. So going into that series one, how do you feel about that with the defensive matchup for the Celtics against the Bucks, And two, how does Chris Middleton's injury kind of change things for Boston? I'm curious what lineup the Bucks play because they've gone with Portis in the, in the two games uh, without Middleton. And so you're looking at Portis, Lopez, Giannis with uh, Drew and uh, who else were they starting in there? Well, um, they mixed in um, some Grayson Allen. I know he took over in that Bulls game. I don't know if he was in their starting lineup, but I know he played so a lot. I'm curious which minutes. lineup they go with. Rob makes a big difference. I mean, just in terms of how they're going to defend Giannis, it's just going to be a lot of bodies. I think both Horford and Rob can do a decent job keeping him in front of them. It's just going to be a foul situation that I think is really going to be the thing that you're most concerned with is if, uh, I mean, Giannis draws a lot of fouls and the Celtics like to play aggressive. So how the series gets called. Oh, uh, they've been started. They played, they played West Matthews a ton last game. That's who it was. Um, and, you know, Grayson Allen played Allen and Connaughton played a ton off the bench. So I'm curious if they stay with that lineup because it'll be interesting how the Celtics match up there. You, you, you probably end up with Tatum as the primary guy starting on Giannis 
uh, with a lot of help and a lot of people coming over. Uh, it is interesting, though, where Milwaukee defensively, where the Celtics are going to have their challenges is everyone can shoot. And that's a concern is you don't really have the luxury of having Rob just kind of float as he does. You know, you kind of pick that non-shooting wing and, and, and put him there and you play off that guy and you help because you really do want help with Giannis going to the basket there. And Lopez can shoot it from the outside. Obviously Portis can. And if they go with a smaller lineup, if it's Matthews or Connaughton and in there or Grayson Allen, all of those guys can fill it up. So this is a team that shoots unlike any of the, I mean, certainly, you know, Brooklyn had some shooters as well, but um, this is where the series is going to come down to is if the Celtics can do all of their switching help on Giannis and be able to throw bodies at him and make life tough on him, but also get out on the shooters. I'm curious whether he may tries to play Giannis close to straight up. I don't, necessarily think that's going to be the case i think when he's going to the basket they are gonna you know they are gonna bring some bodies but i don't think they're gonna double him uh at every opportunity so it's really a matter of the two things the fouls uh, are going to play a big part in it and whether or not Celtics can get out on the shooters or if the Bucks get hot from there. On the flip side, the Middleton thing where I think it's going to be interesting is defensively, Milwaukee's going to have some major problems without Middleton in there. It really messes things up because who the hell is going to guard Tatum in that lineup uh, that started last week? You might bump Giroux up there, but what are you going to do then? Put Wes Matthews on Jalen Brown. There's going to be matchup problems there for them trying to guard Boston's wings no matter who they put out there. They're not going to put Giannis on Tatum 20 feet away from the basket. It's just not what they want to do. They want Giannis closer to the rim to be able to protect. You saw in last year against the Nets, Giannis wasn't out there on the perimeter guarding Durant when he was going off and you know keeping the Nets single-handedly in that series. So I don't think that's going to happen there. So without Middleton there, I, I really am curious how Milwaukee's going to match up defensively against Boston. I mean, obviously Middleton offensively hurts, you know, not having him. I feel like he averages 70 points a game against the Celtics on like 95% shooting. He just doesn't miss, but uh, the defensively, it's going to be really, and sneaky, Milwaukee was sneaky bad defensively this year for a team that you would expect to be better. Uh, they did not have uh, good defensive numbers all season. I know they had some injuries in and out. But uh, I think they're going to have challenges. They're going to have a tough time uh, matching up with the Celtics. I agree with you there. That's one of my primary concerns with the Milwaukee Bucks is when you compare that to the Nets, let's face it, they have a much better bench than the Nets did. I, I know they don't have the ghost of Blake Griffin coming off their bench, but the Milwaukee Bucks, they have a damn good bench. I mean, Grayson Allen, like I said, he took over that Bulls game a couple nights ago. Yep. You look at Brooke Lopez. I've seen Brooke Lopez put some numbers up on the Celtics too in games before. You know, these guys are guys that kind of concern me. So I'm kind of curious to see how that like defensive chess game goes because Kevin Durant, much different player than Giannis. And like you mentioned, he could draw some fouls and put some pressure on the Celtics that way. Uh, certainly taking Tatum or, or anyone else to the cup is going to be interesting to see how the Celtics build that wall. Can they build that wall? What do you think is going to be the primary change from how they defended the Nets to how they defend the Bucks? Uh, you know, that's a good question. And again, I am curious just how they match up. I'm also curious on the lineups, but it really just comes down to uh, whether they decide, I'm going to let Giannis get his and play it straight up because I don't want their shooters to go wild, or... I'm going to throw everybody I have at Giannis. And if the other shooters beat me, they beat me. I think it makes more sense to play Giannis as close to straight up as you can, because you really don't want that to happen. Like I said, they have so many shooters. They have so many shooters all over the floor. That's how they're going to beat you. And I just don't think you just want to be, you know, just leaving bucks open for threes all game long. So I am curious how it goes. It really comes down to how they choose to defend Giannis. So on the flip side, the offensive matchup for the Celtics against the Bucks defense, 
Last year in the finals, I love talking about how when Drew Holiday switched on to Chris Paul, it felt like the series changed a little bit because they stopped looking for offense from Holiday and started using his defense ability. And it felt like the series changed in part there and Giannis was playing awesome. So in this series, it looks like Drew Holiday is going to be stuck on Jalen Brown for pretty much the entire series. Jalen Brown had a above average series against the the Nets, I suppose. It wasn't necessarily super flashy, but how do you feel about Jalen Brown's performance so far? And how do you feel about him matching up against Drew Holiday? Again, the Holiday's a good defender. So that's the, his goal is to erase, you know, one of the other team's better players. You're going to run into that uh, from time to time. I think Jalen Brown can create his own offense regardless, just because he's super athletic and he can, you know, and he's strong and he can get to the cup. So I know holiday will make it tough for him, but he can still come off screens. He can still hit his shots. I think that'll be fine. I just really don't know how they're going to match up with Tatum. That's going to be the major problem is that's fine. If you have a guy who takes away your second best option, but what are you going to do with that guy? Uh, there. And my guess is there's going to be a lot of doubling on Tatum as well, but that's going to leave other guys open. It might leave Jalen open. Um, so I'm not really sure, but hats off to holiday holiday is they're smart on defense. He's, he's a pest. He's physical. He's strong. He plays 94 feet. Um, he's, you know, he's awesome. I, I'm a huge Drew holiday fan. So, you know, he's a big check Mark in the bucks column. He's a terrific point guard. He had a really good shooting season from deep uh, and he's potentially a, a, a first team all NBA defender. So yeah, he's a challenge. He's going to be a challenge and whoever he matches up against, as you said, most likely Jalen, it's going to be hard for him. Uh, as far as what kind of series Jalen had, I thought Jalen had a good series. He's just got to clean up the sloppy stuff. It's all about forcing the issue with him. This part of the problem is he plays fast. And the faster he plays, the more likely he is he's going to do something like dribble it off his knee. I mean, his handle's always been a little bit loose. So he's just got to stay composed. If Holiday presents a challenge and he's tough to beat, you know, just don't force the issue. You don't want to force your way into turnovers, especially when you're playing against a, di- a really difficult defender. If you have opportunities, take them. If not, move the ball, get to a different spot, try to make a difference. You know, moving without the basketball, I think super important for the Celtics too. Sometimes they kind of get locked into place. But yeah, I think, you know, the Holiday Brown matchup is going to be an interesting one, uh, uh, interesting one to watch. Against the Nets, we saw Peyton Pritchard step up. We saw Grant Williams step up. We saw Daniel Thigh step up. So a lot of like key role players off the Celtics bench. Who do you think could be that difference maker against the Milwaukee Bucks? I don't know. It's a good question. I like Pritchard for his shooting because that's just what he does. Uh, if he can come in here and, and knock down shots, I think that's super important. Um, still waiting for Derek White to kind of you know consistently bring something offensively when he's running a second unit offense you know just getting to the rim a little bit more and hitting some of those floaters uh, and just creating a little bit more offense I think he'd be super important Um, I think he's just a super important here and player here in general just because what he does for them defensively so no matter what he's just another guy with you know athleticism and size that you can throw at the bucks there uh, and is going to you know is going to defend his position really well and then I it's Again, I'm naming everybody on the bench, but Grant is an interesting one here because he had such a good series, but there's some size issues here. And this is a type of team that Grant might have a tougher time against because everyone he's going to come in again, there's going to be some length and size that he's going to have to contend with. So 
I'm a little, I wouldn't say worried, but there might be times where Grant might get played off the court just simply because of those issues. He's going to have a role here, but I am curious how he's going to, how he's going to uh, handle it here. So they really only have those guys. I mean, that's as deep as they go. So you need contributions for all of them. I don't know if any one of them is more poised to step up than any other, but they go eight deep and that's it. I mean, I guess nine now that Williams is back. So Tice is in that mix in the bench there. They're going to need all of them here, uh, especially, you know, because like I said, is you need to throw a lot of bodies at Giannis, which could mean a lot of fouls, which could mean, you know, Tice, Grant, all of those guys, they're going to have to come in there. They're going to have to body up and they're going to have to do their best. The winner of Bucks versus Celtics is going to be who? Oh, you know, I don't give that out. Not uh, this early. <laughs> uh, not not before Chicago gets eliminated in four hours. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm going to make it because I make the garden report. People wait for it, too. I'm formulating <laughs> I'm formulating my thoughts here. Um, I love I, pretty- I love the embargo of the thoughts. I I can absolutely get behind that. Yeah, no, we've got our we've got. I have my brand to protect. No, I haven't <laughs> done it yet because I haven't fully formulated. It. And honestly, I just started digging in on the Bucks. It's just interesting. Like, you can throw everything from the regular season out with the Celtics. Nothing matters. The last game they played up there, which actually was encouraging, because they played it without Tatum, Horford and Robert Williams, uh, they were extremely competitive and almost won it. And the game Milwaukee went balls out for trying to win. And I think it was 127-121. The other three games were Christmas or earlier, where the Celtics were a totally different team. First one, the Celtics won, had no Giannis and no Middleton on the other side. There were players missing on both sides. But again, the Celtics as currently constituted have not really faced the full Bucks team. So we have no clue how they faced off. You can't say like, oh, they played them well during the season. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, if you take anything from that last game, the fact that they were competitive with missing three out of five starters, I think bodes pretty well because you did get a sense of like, this is what Milwaukee's about, but um, playoffs will be totally different. And again, playoff Giannis, man, what he did last year was so freaking impressive. So I just knock him like whatever it is you think about the matchups, you just have to step back and be like, the players matter. And like the the stars, of course they do. But like, maybe more so than you can calculate when you just look at the series matchups and like just the will to, to do whatever it takes to just get you this far ahead to get the win. And Giannis kind of, Giannis, not kind of, Giannis clearly has it. And the Celtics are starting to kind of show it too. So that's kind of, that's what I'm most interested to see there. The you You can't discount the Giannis factor and the fact that he'll just, put a team on his back and just will them to, uh, to victory. Uh, and he's so freaking impressive. I mean, I know everyone has their MVP arguments and their MVP debates, and I know Jokic is probably going to win it, but I give it to Giannis. Um, I think he's the most important player. I think he's the most valuable player in the league. He's one of the best offensive players in the league and he's an all defensive player. I just don't know how you bet against this guy. So it's difficult. He's amazing. And, you know, you know, go Greece. Um, I'll, I'll throw that plug in as well. I have a, a small Giannis bias as well. So it, it's hard to make a pick just yet, but I am formulating it. I'll have it for the Garden Report crew, I promise, before the series begins, but I don't have it exactly yet. I did say, I'll, I'll tip my hand a little. I did say if the Celtics got ra- past round one, I would have a hard time picking against them the rest of the way. Okay, John. Okay. The only thing I was not bullish on in round one was the non-Rob factor and, you know, it being the Nets. And I thought they had a, a puncher's chance to 
to come away with it, but a full Celtic squad with everybody healthy, I'll have a hard time picking against them uh, the rest of the way. So jumping in the deep end, it sounds like, you know, you were, you know, waiting around in the pool a little bit, but now just full on dive in. Okay. Okay. Bleed green. Let's go, baby. Let's go. It's hard not to, <laughs> it, it took a, it, I wouldn't say it took a while, but like it was almost hard to fathom what they were doing in the second half of the season. And like, you couldn't tell if it was real, like, you know, in some cases they're beating teams that didn't have their best players, but they're also beating them by like 50, you know, like, and then after a while, you're just like, oh my goodness, they're this good. You know, they are killing people. So again, the last version we saw of this team with everybody fully healthy was absolutely demolishing teams. I mean, destroy, it didn't matter who it was playoff caliber teams. They were beating them by 30. So Again, I, I, I'm hoping Rob gets all the way right or as close to it as he's going to get, you know, this soon after surgery. And if that's the case, it's just the way they were playing. It's just they're a really difficult team to play against. It doesn't matter who you are. OK, so for fans to check out your cautious take heading into the next series, cautious. give all the give all the plugs for the Garden Report. Where can we find all the great content you guys? Yeah. Do? So thank you. Yeah. If anybody is out there, uh, Celtics fan uh, or any Boston sports for, for that matter, we, uh, yeah, we have a lot of different content there, but CLNS media, um, we have uh, multiple YouTube channels there that you can check out a lot of our video content, Celtics, all access Patriots press pass, tons of stuff there for the NFL draft coming up as well. And uh, you know, CLNS media, just main YouTube channel where we do our post game shows uh, live after every game, usually about 90 minutes, maybe sometimes longer, uh, streaming to an audience of the thousands, actually, uh, of people who join in and watch and join the chat. Uh, it's a fun community that people like to, you know, jump in on. The chat is lit the whole time. Most of it is people yelling at me for being negative. Uh, and that's fine. I can take it. I'll play the villain. Uh, if that's the case, but it's a really fun time. It's a good community. It's a lot of very knowledgeable uh, Celtics fans who jump in there uh, and just like to hang out after the games and uh, chop it up with us and chat. Um, so again, CLNS media, you know, check out our YouTube page, check us out at clnsmedia.com. Follow us um, at Celtics CLNS on Twitter. And that's, uh, that's how you find us. All right. Hoping you're not the last Celtics guest I get bring on before this postseason comes to an end. So From you're Gigi a Celtics Dogs fan? absolutely die hard but you know kyle's the celtics hater that's how we balance out this podcast that's how we hater. kind of have an even discussion how did that happen? no i know I, I i i've accidentally surrounded myself with celtics fans in my life and i, I i've made a mistake doing it because now i get rid of celtics hate because i like to piss on everyone's happiness yeah. um I, I i root for the uh the beloved sacramento kings up here so that's we're, nice. uh, exactly so it boils over you know well let me that. ask a quick question before you wrap it julian Come all right on. So give me your give me your pessimistic Celtics take then as a as a as a as a as a person who's who's got who's got Celtics hate. All right, my pessimistic Celtics take, or, or, or you're asking Kyle. But I'll take Kyle's because Kyle's the hater. Okay, let's get Kyle. Because I'm the hater. Um, I felt that even no matter well, first of all, the Celtics don't even have the best defense in the NBA this year, but it's the Golden State Warriors. Golden but State. also that's fine because uh, Golden State played without Draymond for all of those games I, I yeah get it. yeah that one i i think that the boston celtics at the start of the year i said they were like the six or seven seed in the eastern conference and then the second half of the season i'm like i was wrong they are better they are about the fourth or fifth best team in the east if you want to argue miami i was willing to listen to it and then they beat brooklyn and now i have a newfound level of respect for that defense and at the same time bucks and five wow i like it so the the whatever you just said there is a shred 
of what's always been in the back of my head, which is I can't unsee the things I've seen, which was how bad they were at the beginning of the year. And I've always had a difficult time, which is why through 20 so games of that 35 game run where they just lit the world on fire, I'm like, I still can't buy it, you know? And just as I started to buy it, Rob got hurt. So like before I had a chance to really embrace, holy crap, they might be a wagon that happened. So that's still there, a shred of it. But with each game uh, and with each series, it's going to go further and further away. Brooklyn helped dispel that, but the bucks and five is bold. And I think it's wrong, but that's okay. The good news for them is that the, the Celtics are in this interesting place where having Tatum as your true number one is going to guarantee you at least a game. So it, the better bet would be to say like bucks in five and a half, like whether it goes five or six is, is indifferent. I think, I think the bucks control the series most of the way. It's going to be really interesting to see how that works out though, because yes, the Celtics don't have the greatest offense, but having the short bench and having Tatum and Brown be 40% of your offense is more conducive to success in the playoffs. And again, it, the, the counter to that would be the Celtics don't have the greatest offense except for the second half of the year where they have the number one offense. So mm-hmm. it's which do you believe the aggregate or do you believe the recent, you know, and that's what's that's again, this is where people are struggling evaluating the Celtics is are they this super team that killed everybody late that is number one in defense and number one in offense, or is it kind of a combination of everything we've seen? I think you still think combination. It's all on Tatum. It all comes down (laughs) to Tatum. That's the part where I'm struggling to get by it because I think he might be like the fourth or fifth best player in his generation if you take it behind Giannis and Embiid and Jokic and maybe Devin Booker, but I love Devin Booker. Like That's really good. And historically speaking, you lose to the teams that have a star better than your star, but maybe Jason Tatum's turning into a star of his generation. Like Maybe that's changing in front of our eyes. To uh, Giannis's LeBron, maybe? Something like that, or I guess in the past it would have been Westbrook versus Curry or something of those sorts. Like he's incredible and he can beat teams that don't have one of the four best players in the NBA. I'm just interested to see what happens. I mean, he beat Kevin Durant, so that you know it did that's a step in the right direction for Tatum's point. Didn't just beat him, didn't just beat him. Yeah, he he outplayed him start to finish and locked him up. It was pretty impressive. Five years from now, we'll say right now we say the Celtics beat the Nets and five years from now, we'll say Jason Tatum beat Kevin Durant because Kevin Durant will be 39 and Tatum will be in his prime. And that'll be bonus points for Tatum in his development as growing into his physical prime. I don't know exactly. I think physical prime of basketball players is like 25 to 30, but he's entering that right about now. And actually, before you even got on here, John, we were having the discussion, was it just bad Nets? Was it just bad Kevin Durant? Or was it really good Celtics? I guess I lean more on the really good Celtics because I just look at how quickly they switch on defense, their length, their size, how they were up on Durant on every single possession. And I think it's a lot more explainable than Kevin Durant just having a bad series just because he was missing shots. I think that the Celtics did everything in their power to cause them to miss shots. And that's why they had the series they had. Celtics recognized nobody else could beat them um, than those guys. And Brooklyn just had too many personnel issues. They were damned no matter what. I remember Steve Nash gave a like a halftime interview in game three or four. And they're like, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. He's like, 
when, when we, when we go big, you know, they friggin', you know, they attack us. And when we go small, you know, they couldn't, no matter what they did, if, you know, they went big to match up size, so they didn't give up too many offensive rebounds, but if they went to small, the Celtics were just friggin' killing them on the glass. If they went big, they would target their bigs in isolation on switches and get Blake Griffin on a switch on a pick and roll and just go to work. They couldn't do anything, no matter what every lineup the Nets put out there the Celtics could exploit. It was a team thing. I know everyone will look at Tatum and Durant. The Celtics, too much. The Nets could only win if Durant and uh, Kyrie caught fire. Like, and like bananas. Part of, I think, my my uh, pissing on Celtics fans' joy right now is that, historically speaking in the NBA, with, with a few exceptions, team ball usually ends up falling at the end to the team that has the alpha. generational superstar. Yes. Yep. But... That's the thing. The Celtics might have one, you know, <laughs> so that's kind mm-hmm. of where there, there are exceptions you can point to. There yeah, are a few exceptions throughout the Celtics there. might it's have just... a generational superstar. And that's the other thing. Or they might have somebody who's in that conversation very clearly. And that's what differentiates them a little yeah. bit. Sometimes you don't know it. You, you assess what you know now, but then you look at it two years later and you'd be like, oh, my God, of course they won with those guys on the team because you didn't see. You know, I, I, I this will date me, but like the 2001 Patriots had one of the greatest Super Bowl upsets of all time, beating the Rams. And everyone's like, who are these little these these spunky guys? And then a couple of years later, you're like, oh, my God, there was a crap ton of good players on that team. You just didn't fully realize it at the time. So like, yes, of course, you realize Tatum and Brown are good. But, you know, Williams and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and how just how good Tatum is and just how good Brown is like to, to speak for the self. This could be the coming out in the sense of like, yeah, we're going to be the shit for the next few years. We're just going to, you know, showing everybody, you know, what's happening right now. I'm interested to see where it goes, because you're right. If you lose, they're going to look to Tatum and be like, well, you got outplayed by Giannis, you know, you know, Giannis was better than you. And that's why you lost. They are a team now and it might be a team failure, but you're right. You're going to point to the superstars if if it goes south for the Celtics. You learned with us. You laughed with you us. Laughed with us. Now it's time to do some deep thinking. Hashtag bust the slump with your weekly words of wisdom. All right, gal. So my words of wisdom this week comes from author Ken Porat. Today is your opportunity to build the tomorrow you want. Any day you wake up is your opportunity to do something great. You could record a podcast. You could just make a healthier dinner. You could go to the gym. You could learn Spanish. You can advance yourself in every unique way. So I think every day is a good opportunity to work towards a brighter future, particularly if you're like in our age demographic in our 20s, where you don't know what tomorrow has in store, but you can always work to make tomorrow a better day. Yeah. Always have a vision. And the important thing about a vision is that you have to be able to see it. So if you have a vision for the future, you can build towards that. It's very important to have purpose and perspective in life. Hopefully, lots of people have that. And if you're not, it's never too late to change. I I think nothing exemplifies this quote more than you hitting the subscribe button today. So your opportunity tomorrow is for new episodes of the Slump Buster podcast to be on your favorite streaming platform. Remember, guys, leave a like on this video if you're watching on YouTube. Leave a five star if you're listening to us on Apple iTunes. And overall, from Kyle Ledbetter and Juju Talk Sports, stay safe, happy, and healthy. We will see you on the next one.